on the west front of Bath Cathedral in England, on either side of the main doors, architects carved two ladders into the main towers. On the ladders are angels, and they are coming and going up and down the ladders, populating the highway between heaven and earth. And the allusion to Jacob's dream is obvious. Perhaps not so obvious is the allusion also to John chapter 1. In the final verse of John 1, we are greeted by a curious scene and a curious name. Jesus says to Nathanael in John 1 and verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I wonder, can you explain this text? If you recall from last week, John identifies numerous glorious names for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Word, the life, the light, the only Son from the Father, Christ the only God, the Lord, or Yahweh. He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, the Messiah, the Christ, and the King of Israel. All that in John chapter 1. So with all these glorious names at His disposal, which does Jesus choose when He first identifies Himself? When you harmonize the four Gospels, you discover that John chapter 1 and verse 51 is actually the first recorded instance of Jesus identifying himself by name. So what name does he choose? He chooses this name, the Son of Man. Now in verse 49, Nathanael called Jesus the Son of God. And Jesus immediately responds by calling himself the Son of Man. And this is his most common self-designation. So why does Jesus choose this name? And why does he add this puzzling clarification about angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on himself? When you observe those angels that are frozen there in stone on Bath Cathedral, you really can't tell whether they're coming or going, and that's the point. So friends, can we invest our hearts and our minds this morning to understand this marvelous description of Jesus of Nazareth, John 1 and verse 51. We do need to invest our hearts, and if our hearts are invested, our minds will come along. What I mean by that is we're going to have to work at this, okay? You can do this. You can do this. It's going to take some work. But it is rewarding. My wife asked me this morning, are we just going to be in John 1? Or are we going to be all over the place? Well, we're going to be all over the place. All right? So let's begin by going all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. That's the passage alluded to here in our passage. Genesis 28. While you turn, let's actually think our way further back. All the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the original creation, heaven and earth existed harmoniously. 
Genesis 3 speaks of God walking through Eden in the cool of the day, as if this was a normal affair. Heaven is the presence of God in Scripture, and Eden is therefore heaven, because God's presence is there. But something goes terribly wrong. The man and the woman, whom God created suddenly, hide themselves from God's presence. And Adam exclaimed, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Because of their sin, God drove Adam and Eve right out of the garden. And for the first time, we read of the ministry of unfallen angels, cherubim angels. And by the way, the I am ending in Hebrew is plural, cherubim, plural, They were placed to protect Eden with a flaming sword that slashes out in every direction. Now, in Hezekiah's day, a single angel destroyed an army of 185,000 soldiers in one night. So think of those angels with that fiery sword, and they are protecting the entrance to Eden. Clearly, there is no return out of the fallen creation through Eden's gate, back into the presence of God. That way is closed. And a mere four chapters later, God deluged the fallen creation under a catastrophic flood that ripped apart continents and buried human civilization under sediments more than 10,000 feet thick. Carnage littered the planet. Eden is gone. Nevertheless, Noah's descendants believed they could reopen the gate of heaven. And in Genesis 11, we read of them building a great tower and climbing into the sky to reunite heaven and earth through false religion. But no angels come to descend that tower. Rather, God descends in judgment on Shinar, and He confuses the language of men, and He scatters them all across the earth. So Eden is gone, and the tower is abandoned. And then approximately a thousand years go by. Genesis 12 then commences a story with an ancient patriarch named Abraham. Abraham has some five conversations with God. And we hear prophecies concerning a far-off time when God will bless all nations through Abraham's descendant. And Abraham acknowledges to the king of Sodom that God Most High is possessor of heaven and earth. And friends, that's really good news because the God who barred Eden's gate and destroyed the earth of the flood still claims his creation. Now, Abraham had a son named Isaac and a grandson named Jacob. With them, the Abrahamic covenant begins its descent through a burgeoning family tree. And that brings us now to Genesis chapter 28. Jacob is a wily coyote, a true son of Adam. And he contrives to steal away his brother's birthright. And now he flees to Haran to avoid Esau's wrath and also to find for himself a wife. So let's take up our reading in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba 
and went toward Haran. And they came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder, or probably a stairway of some sort, a stairway set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. Microphone around. Let me just fix this real quick. There we go. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, look at this, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob's dream apparently is a stunning reversal of Eden where God drove Adam away with angels and flaming swords. In Jacob's dream, angels come and go with ease. And Jacob is clearly not terrified by their presence. And his dream ends with a delightful prospect. He has found the gate of heaven, the return to Eden, the tower to heaven, the portal between heaven and earth. And Jacob declares in verse 16, Yahweh was in this place. So surely Jacob has found the most important place anywhere on planet earth. And in verse 19, Jacob calls this sacred place Bethel. And he turns his stone pillow into an altar. Now Bethel means the house of God. The dwelling of God. Look at the end of verse 17. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So friends, if you want to return to Eden, to travel with the angels on the stairway to heaven, then all you have to do is go to Bethel, right? That's how you get there. There are no flaming swords in Bethel, no abandoned towers. There's a gateway right into heaven. Is Bethel the place of reunion between heaven and earth? Or nothing more than an evanescent dream. Well, would you turn to Amos chapter 3? And as you turn, you are turning over several more references to Bethel. There are some 61 references to Bethel in the Old Testament. 
And if we were to look at every last one of them, we would find no gateway to heaven. In fact, quite the opposite. When the Davidic kingdom split, King Jeroboam drew off ten northern tribes. Jeroboam was afraid that his people would return to Judah to worship at the temple. And so in place of temple worship, he fashioned two golden calves. He declared, Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Jeroboam took one of those two wicked idols and he set it up at a place that was an alternative to temple worship. And that place was Bethel. And there he built a four-horned altar to engage in pagan sacrifice. In 1 Kings 13, we read of an unnamed prophet who comes to confront Jeroboam there at Bethel. And that prophet decreed that a king would be born, Josiah by name. And one day he would burn the bones of the false prophets on Jeroboam's altar to the golden calf. But for the time being, Bethel became the site of supreme idolatry in Israel. And that brings us now to Amos 3, where the prophet Amos has been called of God to denounce the idolatry of Bethel. And look at the middle of verse 14. Amos 3, 14, middle of the verse. I will punish the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Well, if you're holding out hope of finding Jacob's stairway to Bethel, stairway to heaven through Bethel, friends, and just think again. It's gone. And look at Amos 5 and verse 5. But do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Well then, where does this leave us now? Eden is gone. The tower has failed. And Bethel has fallen into idolatry. Do not seek Bethel. So where do we turn? Well, read the next five words. Amos 5, verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. Amos offers just a ray of hope. Hope in spite of our transgressions. Look at verse 12. For I know how many are your transgressions, your idolatry, and how great are your sins. And hope surfaces again in the second half of verse 15. It may be that the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of hosts, That's the God of all those angels ascending and descending. It may be that the God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now bring all that back to John chapter 1. Let's turn back there with Amos' ray of hope just illuminating the way before us. 
The God of angel hosts may yet be gracious to supreme idolaters. But where do we seek the Lord and live? To use Amos' language. Where do we seek the Lord without running into flaming swords or abandoned towers or golden calves? Well, the Old Testament narrative pressurizes the words of John 1 and verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Friends, that is really good news. The gate of heaven is going to open again. The way to Eden will be restored. The tower to heaven rebuilt. Jacob's dream will come true. Angels will populate the highway between heaven and earth once again. But did you notice that something is entirely new here and unexpected? Did you see it? The gate of heaven does not reopen in a place. It reopens in a person. That's what Jesus is saying. The gate is not the boundary of Eden or the plains of Shinar or an altar at Bethel. We will not make our pilgrimage to a place, but to a person. Come to the Son of Man and discover the expanding gate of heaven. So friends, does that really help you understand Jesus' puzzling clarification? The gate to heaven will reopen in a place, not in a place, but in a person. That's what he's saying. Well then, why does Jesus choose the name Son of Man when he launches his public ministry? And to understand this term, let's turn back again to the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 7. We have been to Daniel 7 several times, but we better turn there again. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, we first discover this glorious name, the Son of Man. Let me just pause. Am I doing something wrong with this microphone? Do I need to move it? I just keep getting all this feedback. Just okay. Just I will slide it down a little bit. I'm sorry for all that, but okay. It's we unplugged the microphone when we moved the pulpit today, so we've got to just go with the lapel mic and ignore the feedback. All right. Why does Jesus choose this term, Son of Man? Well, Daniel concerns God's rule over the nations. Daniel speaks of the most powerful king who ever lived, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, the only man in all of human history who is called the head of gold, the most powerful monarch who has ever lived and will ever live, the only head of gold. God takes that man and God humbles him like a barnyard animal. And when he comes to his senses, Nebuchadnezzar confesses his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation unto generation, all the way down to 2021. 
Now, in Daniel 7, we are afforded a marvelous view of God, who is called here the Ancient of Days. And we are told what the Ancient of Days does with all of His supreme power and authority. That same power that He used to humble kings, what does He do with that? Well, look at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took His seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of His head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out before him. A thousand thousand served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment. And the books were open. Well, here is the Ancient of Days, and he's sitting there on a throne of burning fire. And it moves along on these wheels of great fire, fiery wheels. And a stream of fire issues from the throne. And the Ancient of Days is surrounded by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of angels. These same angels that come and go along the stairway to heaven. Now in verse 13, we discover for the first time a reference to this august figure, the Son of Man. A rather obscure title in the Old Testament. Look at this verse, verse 13. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came. Notice that word came. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now observe two crucial points. First, verse 13 describes the Son of Man as coming. You see that he came. He's coming. But notice he's not coming to earth. Where is he coming? The first time the Son of Man is mentioned as coming, he's not coming to earth. He's actually coming to the throne. He's coming to the Ancient of Days. And second, when the Son of Man came, he received an everlasting kingdom. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What does the Ancient of Days do with all of His authority and power to rule the nations? He gives it to the Son of Man. To Him was given a kingdom. Now the Son of Man, friends, from this point forward, whenever Daniel 7 is fulfilled, is given a kingdom that will never be taken away from him. He will rule from now on forevermore. So that raises a very interesting question. When is Daniel 7 fulfilled? And there really is some uncertainty about this among Bible readers. When is Daniel 7 fulfilled? And you've really got to get this correct if you're going to interpret our world. Well, with that image in mind, let's turn to Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew 8, Jesus uses the term Son of Man for the first time in the New Testament. 
That is, if you're reading through the New Testament from Matthew all the way through to John, the first time you'll see the term Son of Man is in Matthew 8, although chapter 1 and verse 51 of John is chronologically earlier than Matthew chapter 8. This is, in other words, the first canonical reference to the Son of Man. And the scene in Matthew 8 bears no resemblance at all to Daniel chapter 7. It speaks not of supreme power, but of abject poverty. Look at verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's the first time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the New Testament. And he is a poverty-stricken, humble Galilean with not so much as a place to cradle his head at night. He is lower than the animals. Now, if indeed he's the king over all nations, you'd never know that by reading Matthew 8 and verse 20. So when is Daniel 7 fulfilled? Well, let's turn to Matthew 10. And here Jesus delivers a message on discipleship. And then he sends his disciples out on a local mission. In verses 5 and 6, he tells them not to go to the Gentiles, nor to the Samaritans, only to Israel. So this is very local. This is first century. This is before Pentecost. A local mission, only to Israel. He tells them, beginning in verse 9, don't take provisions for a long, indefinite mission. Don't take gold along. Don't take an extra tunic, extra sandals. Just move speedily from village to village in Israel. That's the limit of your mission. But notice an intriguing verse, verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel... Look at this. Before the Son of Man comes. Now, what does that mean? It means the Son of Man must come in the first century. He must come before they have finished their local mission to Israel. He must come before Pentecost, when they begin to go to the Samaritans. The Son of Man will come in the first century. Make no doubt about it. Now turn ahead to Matthew chapter 16, verses 27 through 28. Here the term appears again. And see whether you can harmonize Matthew 10 with Matthew 16 and verse 27. Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and that doesn't refer to the transfiguration, the next chapter, because there's no angels in the transfiguration. The Son of Man is going to come with the angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Well, friends, that does not sound like any event that I know of in the first century or the last 2,000 years. Has that happened? He's come with all the angels and just repaid everyone for their deeds? Has that happened? Keep reading, verse 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now wait a minute. 
We're right back in the first century. The Son of Man must come before all the disciples die off. Then again, what is this business of coming in His kingdom, coming in judgment and judging the nations? Well, let's turn to Matthew 25. Here we have another reference to the coming of the Son of Man. This is in the Olivet Discourse. And we are not actually looking at every reference to the coming of the Son of Man in Matthew. I'm just looking at enough to create confusion. All right? In Matthew 25, 31, we read, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. Now, in the first century, there are nations to come that have not yet even been born, like the United States of America, which wasn't around in the first century. So clearly, this has to be a future event. The gathering of all nations for judgment, that's got to be sometime in the future. Now that sounds like Daniel 7, especially the part about the angels. All right, so are we adequately confused? I hope so. Actually, I hope those of you who are around for Matthew's gospel aren't confused, all right? Because we dealt with this issue. But here is what we have discovered. The Son of Man must come in the first century. He's got to. And the Son of Man must come in the future. Well, let's turn to just one more passage. Matthew 26. And everything will become perfectly clear. Jesus is now on trial before the high priest and the Jerusalem council. And on trial, they find no fault with him. The high priest becomes frustrated. In verse 63, he exclaims, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus answers, Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Friends, that statement secured Jesus' crucifixion. Crucify this prophet from Galilee and let's be done with him. But Jesus says, from now on. From now on what? Here's what you're going to see. The Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Jesus' language references the vision in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man came with the clouds, we're told, to the throne of the Ancient of Days in heaven. And notice those three crucial words, from now on. Quite literally, Jesus claimed Daniel 7 would be fulfilled from now on. 
Also notice the word coming. It's a present participle, which basically means it's ongoing action. This is not a one-time coming. This is a permanent coming. The coming of the Son of Man is an ongoing event. It doesn't happen just once. Jesus' coming will be like the angels ascending and descending. You lay hands on this Galilean carpenter without it so much as a place to cradle his head at night. He's lower than the animals. And you pin him to a cross like a common criminal. And you let that heaving body, marred beyond recognition, expire on a cross. And guess what happens? From now on, he has all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, nations and languages should serve him. Daniel 7 is fulfilled from now on. That's what Jesus was saying to us. On trial, from now on, mark my words, Daniel 7 is fulfilled. And friends, that connects us with last week's sermon. At the resurrection, Christians began calling Jesus, Jesus Christ. Remember that? We worked through that last week. Before the resurrection, who is the Christ? Are you the Christ? Nobody's calling him Jesus Christ. At, at the resurrection, all of a sudden, people start calling him Jesus Christ. Jesus King, Jesus Messiah. And that's why Matthew's gospel concludes so dramatically with Jesus now resurrected, claiming all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. That is Daniel 7 fulfilled. And friends, he does not relinquish that authority to anyone. And you better find a place for that in your eschatology. The future is all about the reign of Christ. The coming of the Son of Man began with the resurrection of Christ from the grave. And it continues because He continues to reign forevermore. Now remember what happened at His ascension? Remember the clouds? We're told Jesus went up and the clouds just received Him out of their sight. Well, what happened on the other side of the clouds? Daniel 7. He came with the clouds, the coming, he came with the clouds to a throne. The Son of Man came to a throne and received all authority from the ancient of days in the first century. He came before the disciples finished their mission to Israel, just as he said. He came before they all died. In fact, only one had died, Judas, before Jesus ascended to his throne. And indeed, Jesus comes in judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. We read about that back in the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus comes for every believer who dies. And he brings him right through that gate into heaven. And he comes in judgment with his angels at the end of the age. He just keeps on coming and keeps on reigning. Friends, the coming of Jesus, biblically speaking, is permanent. And that sounds kind of strange to us, like you come once, right? 
The coming of Jesus is permanent. It's the new normal. The entrance to Eden is now wide open, never to close again. The tower ascending to heaven is populated by men and by angels. Jacob's dream finds its fulfillment not in a place, but in a person. From now on, Nathaniel, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heaven and earth are united in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, with all that in mind, let's go back to John 1 and verse 51. And just bring all of that revelation to bear on the words of Jesus. For the first time in his public ministry, Jesus names himself. And the name that he chooses chooses, just sends us scouring through the entire Old Testament to figure out what he means. And this name really is critical in John because it establishes a trajectory. John 1, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Again, the gate of heaven is opening. You're going to see it, not in a place, but in a person, the Son of Man. And just to be clear, it's not just the angels that come and go. Later in John, John chapter 3 and verse 13, this is what Jesus says to Nicodemus. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It's the Son of Man who comes and goes also. And notice those two words, ascending and descending. These also are present participles. They speak of continuing action. Like the phrase, from now on... They speak of a new permanent reality. The gate of heaven is no longer barred by angels with flaming swords. The gate of heaven does not close when Jacob awakes from his dream. The Son of Man resurrects with all authority to throw those gates open wide. And those angels are there lining the gates to receive people home to heaven. Now, friends, with all that in mind, let's turn to one final passage, Revelation chapter 21. One more passage to go, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation was also penned by John. And I am so tempted to come back next week and preach a sermon on Revelation chapter 1. I may do that, I don't know. But Revelation 1 is really emphatic. But go to 21. The book of Revelation, friends, is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It is not a revelation of the Antichrist or the new world order or a future one world government. It's not an exposition of what's happening in today's newspapers. I was sitting at a car dealership this week getting my oil changed. I was reading a commentary on Revelation, and there was a man sitting there with a cross dangling out of his ear. And he looked at me and he said, well, what are you reading? I showed him the book. I said, oh, it's a commentary on Revelation. He says, oh, does that explain everything that's happening in the world right now? This really is about Jesus. That's what this book is about, all right? This book is about Jesus, all right? It is the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus Christ. I had somebody else tell me, I found coronavirus in Revelation. Okay, 
Maybe you did. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But all right. It really is about Jesus Christ. Peter told us at Pentecost that God made Jesus the Christ at the resurrection. And here is the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Friends, the future, the eschaton, the last days were actually launched 2,000 years ago on Easter morning. Did you know this? When we talk about the last days, it's not just something in the future. It's something that began on Easter morning when Jesus was given all authority over all nations. And any study of the future that is not rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ will go off the rails theologically. It will. You've got to root your future in the past. You've got to root your eschatology in the resurrection of Christ. That's where you have to begin. Now, Revelation 1 also tells of a vision that, the son of, that, that John had of the Son of Man. And that's why I'm thinking about coming back to it next week. I don't know. All right, but the two names, Jesus Christ and the Son of Man, that we discovered in John 1, also turn up in Revelation chapter 1. And the Son of Man tells John these words, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Why is he saying that? You don't have to turn back to Revelation 1. Stay in 21. <laughs> Why is he saying that? Why does he tell them, write the things that you have seen, the things that are coming? Here's why. Because a son of man from now on reigns. He can tell you exactly what's going to happen in the future because he rules the future. From now on, it all belongs to him. All right? So in that context, let's come to Revelation chapter 21 and the end of this glorious vision that John has of Jesus Christ. And here we discover not merely angels, but in fact a whole city, a bright city coming down out of heaven to the new creation. And remember all those rebellious nations that were dispersed from Babel, speak in their many tongues, whatever became of them. Well, Revelation 21 and verse 24 says this, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, into the city of God. Look at all those nations, all those kings bringing their glory and their honor into the city of God. And how do they come in? Look at verse 25. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Look at these delightful words. The gate of heaven has been permanently opened by the apocalypse of the Lamb. From now on, the Son of Man has open the gate of heaven. It's open all day long and there's no night. It's open to anyone. God's answer to two rebels in Eden is a city large enough to accommodate the nations. God's answer to the rebellion at Babel is Pentecost and the redemption of every tribe 
and tongue and nation. The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man has opened the gate from now on. Now, in conclusion, let me just speak to anyone here today who may be merely exploring Christianity. I think just about every week we have somebody come in who would not confess to be a believer, and that's fine. We welcome you. Friends, I want you to understand that Christianity is not about a place. It's not even about this building that we're in. It's not about a place. It's about a person. Bethel has long since succumbed to idolatry. The temple is gone. The tabernacle is gone. We don't need them. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. Brick and mortar churches do not last. Altars erode. The incense that you offer, it just fades in the breeze and it's gone. All over the world today, from South America to Asia, Australia to Siberia, Europe to Africa, across islands, deserts, and forests, you can find ancient sanctuaries, ancient temples, ancient altars. They've collapsed over time. Friends, here is the Christian conviction. The place where God has permanently united heaven and earth, the place where angels ascend and descend is not a place at all. It's a person. It's a person. The person of the permanently incarnate Son of Man. The permanently incarnate Jesus Christ. And friend, when Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross to make an atonement for human sin and resurrected in the same body that perished on the cross, here's what He did for you. He opened a way of permanent reconciliation with God. It's open. It's available. But friend, it is the only way. It is the only way. When you look at verse 27... Here's what John writes, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Well, that sounds like all of us, actually. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. You can only pass the gate of heaven if your name is in the book of life. So how do you get your name into the book of life? The Bible's answer to that question is really very, very simple. You have to confess Jesus Christ as the only way. Not about a place. It's about a person. You have to confess Jesus Christ as the only way, the truth, and the life. That's it. That's how you come in. And when you do that, your name is written down. And you have access to God. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has showed us the way. We thank you that in the person of Jesus Christ, we have permanent access now to you, into the heavenly kingdom, into the new creation. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who as yet does 
not know the way and has not come to Christ, that today might be the day that their eyes are open and they see Christ for who He is. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.